emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and Ron, today's show, the long-awaited return of Free Rider Friday. From July, Ed. For, for July. July. This is July edition. <laughs> it's August 18th. This is the July edition of Free Rider Friday. Just so you know, we, ha- we had a series of snafus and situations that uh, caused us to, uh, to have to shift around the schedule a bit. And then the, the, the flood in Arizona caused us to delay even further. But, but uh, rest assured... Soul of Enterprise fans, this is the first of a double dose of Free Rider Friday. This is our July show edition, and then next week we will actually do our August edition. Yeah, so, so you'll be caught up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I know that we we talked a little bit about this on previous, but you know the 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 stack of stuff is so bursting here, Ron. Um, and and I'm going to go way back to something that I found the evening after our previous Free Rider Friday show. Okay. Uh, so this is from I found this on June 30th. Unfortunately, after we had gone to our to, to finished up our uh, our show, and you know you t- you tell this great story. I think we we did tell it uh, on one of the shows with uh, in in Toronto. You you talked a bit about the the fact that uh, the the George Will had this great story about the two two cars and uh, there were only two cars in Ohio. And what was it like 1898 or something? 1890. Yeah, it's the 1890 history of theory of history of, of Ohio or something like that. Forget exactly right. what he calls it, but yeah. Right. So that and and the the long and short is is there were only two automobiles in Ohio in in this year in 1890, and sure enough, they were in, in engaged in a car accident. They collided. Yeah. <laughs> so so that's the deal. So this is this is related to that. And I had heard about this a couple of years ago, but recently really saw a, a, a number of articles referenced to this, although there's nothing been written new on it, but, but I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Do you know that the first ever uh, p- urban planning conference was held in New York City in 1898? Mm, right? Okay. And um, this, this, they brought in all of these experts – from all around the world, all of the great cities around the world, London, Paris, uh, were, were represented, I'm sure, Philadelphia, Boston, um, maybe probably even Washington, D.C., were all represented at this conference. It was a, considered to be the first ever urban planning co- conference. And the, 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 the number one subject, Ron, at this conference, do you want to take a, a stab at what it is? Horses. Horse manure, actually. Horse manure, yeah. Okay. Horse manure, yeah. very close. Like that was the big thing, and the 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 experts all agreed that the the conference was scheduled for like ten days. They left in three. They like they wrapped. <laughs> <laughs> they wrapped it up, 
right? It was like, nope, no, no reason for us to continue the conversation after three days. They had decided that without question, in a hundred years, uh, all of the great cities would be gone, would be lost forever to time, mm-hmm. right? And it would, in the end, it was most likely begin to happen 50 years hence. So this would be by, by, by 1948, all of the great cities would, would, would rapidly be disintegrating. And, and without question, by 1998, there would be no cities left. And mm-hmm. the rationale, of course, for this is that the, 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 with the increasing number of horses that were needed, the pile of manure would be you know three feet high, 30 feet high, whatever number you want to throw. And, and this is the key. 100% of the experts agreed. Not 97, Ron. 100%. of the experts agreed. I, I want to know when we're going to stop listening to these people. Mm, well, clearly we're not. Right? <clears throat> and I, I, I just think that this is, this is, this is a, a truly fantastic story and a great example of this, this rule of experts and how it is completely in line with our thinking about, listen, you, the, the economics and the study of, of the creation of value and the creation of wealth never can the future planners can never take into account, account the surprise that is human ingenuity, ingenuity right and yep. innovation they they couldn't see a car coming they they couldn't see it right and yep. clearly there were some automobiles around at the time because i think the first automobiles or horseless carriages as they were called appeared in the late 1880s yeah, right. I think it's Dom- Domler-Benz. Mm-hmm. And they, and they stu- still, even, with, even though the technology existed, they still couldn't put those th- two things together. Not that I would expect them to, by the way. Right? Not that I would expect them to. I'm not, I'm not faulting these experts um, for, for not seeing it. What I am you know, fault- faulting them for, for seeing, or what I am faulting, is us continuing to believe this story that the experts, when the experts agree, oh, we know what's going to happen. Right. Especially when all they can do is extrapolate, uh, you know, the past trend line. And, you know, if, if the extrapolation is unsustainable, it's going to stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something's going to replace it. New technology, new resource, whatever. I mean, God, this is the story of, of life, mm-hmm. of civilization. And we just keep buying into these experts because there's a consensus. Well, you know what? Science is not based on consensus. It's based on dissent. Mm-hmm. And and like you say, creativity always takes us by surprise, right? Right. Otherwise, we could plan for it, and we wouldn't need an urban planning committee. <laughs> you could just sure. sit down and you know do this by computer or something. Yeah. Oh. So anyway, there there there's there's my first first topic, right? This notion of the the first urban planning conference, and that we really shouldn't shouldn't be here right now anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Ed, I got one, and this goes back to May. I actually drew from the bottom of my stack today, so I'd you know be more into the July stuff. But and actually, one of our colleagues, Matthew Burgess from uh, Brisbane, also emailed me about this. It was uh, a briefing in the Economist called "Fuel of the Future," and it's from their May sixth issue. And they were basically equating oil refinery and data centers have much in common. They're both crucial feedstocks to the new world economy, right? And they say in there, by 2025, not far away, data every year will reach 180 zettabytes. 
That's 180 followed by 21 zeros, <laughs> just, just to be clear. It would take 450 million years to pump through a broadband connection. Um, Oracle says data will be the ultimate, and this is interesting, the ultimate externality. We will generate data from whatever we do. So Google, you know, will be able to target ads better and, and you know, use for AI, obviously, and cognitive services. Tesla has 1.3 billion miles worth of driving data, way more than Alphabet's Waymo, which is mm-hmm. their self-driving car division. And what's interesting about data compared to oil are the differences. Flows of data are not necessarily a commodity because each stream is different. So they're not fungible. And unlike oil, it's a non-rival asset, right? It can be used right. different places at different times. It's easily used for other purposes than those that you originally agreed upon. And this adds great confusion over to who owns it, right? Take the driverless car. Who owns the data? The census makers? The owner? The passenger? Right? The, the automobile manufacturer? The software right. engineers? All of that. So we're only starting to develop pricing methodologies for who owns data. And of course, this, you know, what the economist is basically saying is without a pricing mechanism, this is going to be an underdeveloped market. And they cite Caesars Entertainment, which ended up, you know, Harris, I think, uh, bought them out. Uh, but when they filed bankruptcy in 2015, their most valuable asset <laughs> and what Harris ended up buying was data on 45 million customers, right? The, the gamblers, the, the gambling loyalty program, basically. Right, um, right. And so the, the goal here is, you know, do we need a personal data ca- account that we can all, you know, buy and sell and manage personally? Um, we haven't done it yet. We tend, we tend to give it away. Nobody really knows what our data is worth. You know, what's our Amazon search worth? What's our eBay searches worth or Google searches or any of that? Google's chief economist, Hal Varian, says that data, data exhibits a decreasing returns to scale. Collecting more doesn't do anything. He says what matters is the quality of the algorithms and the talent that, that develops them. So he says Google's success is tied not, it's not about recipes, it is about recipes, not the ingredients. Interesting. And so the economist lays out three policy problems with data. First, what about antitrust? It like standard oil. Is Google too big? That's another story in my stack, by the way. Um, you know, government could give away its data. It, it's, it's data that it collects, right? Because they have a ton of data on people. Or they could support data co-op. So there's the whole antitrust thing. There's the privacy issue, obviously, big conflicts. And they're socially, they bring up social equality as well. Um, but what, they, what they're working on is some type of way to measure data's value. And they quote one guy in here who says, well, it, it's data is labor. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, so great. We're going to use the labor theory. Of no, knowledge. good. Yeah, bring that, <laughs> roll that sucker out again. That's what we want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we need a digital labor movement, he says. And I just thought, wow. And it's really interesting because China has draft regulations on the board. That critical data about their citizens has to be stored within China. Now, I have no idea how they're going to enforce this, but you know that's really interesting. But I just thought the whole comparison between data and oil, you know, I think there's. I'm not convinced of it. I, I, I think oil was far more transformational in terms of what what it allows us to do as as civilizations. But um, 
I thought this was really interesting. They're asking the right questions. We do need a pricing mechanism in this market. You know, kind of goes back to David Friedman's idea that, you you know, if somebody sends you an email, they should have to pay you a penny or some right. type of micropayment, right? Yep. Well, and this and this where the confluence of perhaps Bitcoin comes in, where those micropayments become more and more possible that, that we're t- tied to the to the technology platform. Exactly, right. and 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 how Varian's comment about Google's success is about recipes, not ingredients. It just it just uh, you know that Russ Roberts when he uh, an econ talk when he interviewed the chef, she she said a line in there that I just thought was fantastic. She said, "Technique trumps ingredients." A great chef can take a mediocre ingredient and still, or ingredients and still make a great meal. Yep. That, so that's true. That's a great, great knowledge worker line. Technique mm-hmm. trumps ingredients. Amen. Amen. Yeah. All right, Ron. Well, we got, we only have like two minutes left. So let me see if I can get one quick one in here. Because this okay. is this is un, under our heading of uh, some of the the and this is you just mentioned Ru- Russ Roberts he had a post I don't know if you saw this uh, under the the guise of economic puzzles right mm-hmm. why is milk in the back of the store oh right yes I did see that right so the the long and short is is what what's the overwhelming belief Ron why do people believe that milk is in the back of the store so you have to walk back there to uh, and pass through everything else and buy more. Yep, absolutely, right? That's And that's the thought. And I think I believe that just about everybody I, I have ever encountered thinks that the reason why milk is in the back of the store is because that you're running in for milk, you'll you'll impulse buy on the, on the way, you know, either to the milk or the way back from the milk. And honestly, I can't remember ever having to do that. Like if I have to, if I go out and get milk and it's at a, a full-fledged grocery store, uh, either I'm buying, shopping for other things anyway, uh, or I just go in and get the milk and leave, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I can't ever that remember that working on me. So that's number one. And I always t- tend to, to try to use myself as, as a best test case. But the, the second thing is, is and I think he, he points this out, and this is a, a great notion, is it also has to do with the, the place where, you know, because chemical refrigeration is taking place, it's much safer for it to be in the, in the back of the store and not in the front of the store. Absolutely right, and in and in a in a back area where that they can where they can control it, and therefore you know restock the shelves a little bit easier rather than have to you know bring the stuff around front, right? So I think that that is probably the 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 biggest reason. Um, there, there's other different theories, and we'll post the link to his his article on this. But I I really think that that, that he's onto something there. That it, it's it doesn't it's not what we traditionally think it is. Right. Just just one more great example of how, you know, when you look at something and, and your knee jerk reaction is absolutely wrong. I mean, obviously, grocery store owners know something that we don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. And as the cost of this refrigeration, I think it also I think he brought up maintenance, too, didn't he? It's easier yes. to maintain and repair these things and a lot safer for the shoppers if they're in the back. So, yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah, so that was a great, great post. Yep, terrific. Okay, well, we're up against our first break. Want to remind you, you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to ask T-S-O-E at verisage.com. That's A-S-K-T-S-O-E at verisage.com. That's also the hashtag that we follow on Twitter and also our Twitter handle. So if you want to contact us on those platforms as well, you only got to remember the one thing, ask T-S-O-E at verisage.com. But right now, a word from our sponsor, Leading results.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on Free Rider Friday. Uh, one of the things that I've been trying to do, Ron, during these Free Rider Fridays, and before I, I get over to your next story, is to bring up either an economic or political science slash economic term, because the show is based on one called Free Rider Friday. So I want to share with our audience quickly one one that uh, I came across this this past this past month, and that is uh, Duverger's Law. It's probably Duverger, Duverger if you're the guy, since the guy was French. Uh, are you familiar with this one, Ron? Is it, no. You've heard of it? Okay. This is, this is a, the, 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 lots of talk in libertarian circles, because it's a, it, it is a, a fascinating study around the mathematics behind that in a plurality ruled election such as a first past the post which is what we have here in the United States first past the post right that this right. Th- with single member districts that this will tend to favor a two party system and that math- mathematically the introduction of a third party is all- absolutely impossible unless it displaces one of the other two parties mm-hmm. So this is a, the real struggle. I mean, if you're tried and true libertarian like I am, so this means one of two things: you're we're never we're never going to be a, a a party that come comes in and is, is a third party. There will not in the United States ever be an active third party. By definition, the way the system works, one of the major parties can be replaced. But it, but there cannot be three active parties for any any significant period of time. And that's purely based on the mathematics around this guy's theory. Interesting stuff. It, it is. I do remember that. I don't remember the name. I didn't realize it was a French guy, but uh, yeah, I do remember that. Um, excellent. Yep. Yep. So there's our economic slash political science term of the month. So what else? What do you got now, Ron? All right. I got from The Economist again from June 10th. So you can see I'm working on the bottom of the stack here. But uh, <laughs> and this is their free exchange column, which always deals with an economics issue. And this one is how to be wrong. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And, 
And we did a show on changing your mind, and that's basically what this is about. We did our show on June 16th, so uh, six days after this came out, but I didn't read it before our show. So we're either setting the trend here or following it. I'm not sure, because Planet Money Podcast also did a show on changing your mind. There you go. (laughs) Very very soon after we did. But anyway, um, it says, you know, real trouble leads to a refusal to grapple with contrary evidence. And one economist, a couple of economists, have a theory. Beliefs, like other economic goods, are, are like other economic goods. We spend time and resources building them. They become part of our identity. So, therefore, the endowment effect kicks in, mm-hmm, right? Sure. We value that yep. which we owe, you know, like the IKEA effect, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, that piece of furniture is a piece of crap. Nails are sticking out and it's uneven, but I built it. <laughs> right. So, it's worth a lot. So, they say people engage in motivating reasoning to manage such challenges, like when their beliefs are, are challenged with, by contrary evidence. Uh, strategic ignorance is the first one, where you just avoid information that contradicts your, your worldview. Reality denial is the second, where they say troubling evidence is just rationalized away, right? I'm, I'm kind of noticing this on, um, I wrote a LinkedIn article about why cost accounting is a bad practice, and, you know, some people are, are spitting back that, well, you need some form of cost accounting. <laughs> right. Even if even if it's bogus, you need something, right? It's mm-hmm. like, well, no, really you don't. There are better things to do, but it doesn't matter. That's their worldview. Uh, their third issue is, in, in how we manage this is self-signaling, where the believer, and this is interesting, the believer creates his own tools to interpret the facts in the way he wants so, for instance, an unhealthy person goes for a run every day, which proves he's okay. <laughs> right. Sure. I didn't um, die. It's like the old you know, Stephen Wright line, right? I plan to live live forever. So far, so good. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so and and they end by saying, you know, it's rarely in the interest of those in the right to pretend that they are never wrong. And I, that's why I think this is just such a fascinating topic. You know, the whole, what what have you changed your mind on? And more and more, I'm, I'm hearing people talk about this. Uh, we, we were just talking earlier today about Nassim Taleb's uh, interview with Russ Roberts on Econ Talk. And he talks about some significant issues where he's changed his mind. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, that's important. Absolutely. No, it definitely is important. And I, and question this more and more every day and uh, of course this doesn't mean that that to look at every one of your your deeply held beliefs and go well i guess i'm i'm failing here because i haven't changed my mind on that that's the other thing that concerns me uh, i think what's important is that you are at least willing to entertain and question some of those things um, and it's hard sometimes and i don't think that we we do it all that any of us can really do it all that well Right. We have blind spots. Yep. And and that's really true. Um, and just, you know, because you're into terms, obviously in politics, if somebody changed their mind, they're a flip flopper. Right. <laughs> in the UK, they're called U-turners. <laughs> and in Australia, they're called flippers. <laughs> really? Oh, interesting. Interesting. Well, so that's the same same term, different different countries. Got it. Okay. Cool. Just thought we just thought that was really cool, though, that we're kind of in there thinking along the same lines as these other, uh, you know, as the Economist and Plant, NPR's Planet Money, dealing yep. with some of the same topics without any uh, collaboration. Yep. No, absolutely good stuff. Good stuff. All right. 
Uh, you ready to move on to, to uh, Bitcoin, Ron? Oh, you, you bet. All right. Uh, so this could take us a while here to get through this. I know we got about five minutes left in this segment, but uh, well, and this one, this one's hard because we really can't. I can't go back to 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 July and reverse this. Although I suppose we could. I suppose we could present pr- pretend that it's uh, way back in the end of July, Ron, uh, and and uh, our, our and Bitcoin is a, is tr- is. A, Two thousand eight hundred and seventy-three dollars and eighty-three cents. Right. So put us back in that mindset. Of course, it's really hard when today it's over near forty-two hundred. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> right, and that's only eighteen days later. But uh, that that said, let's 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 jump back. And I, I don't know what you've read about this, but it it seems to me that this whole fork in the bit chain. Mm-hmm. Didn't amount to much. No, it didn't. But but Ed, a new currency did come out of it. Isn't that right? That is correct. It's I think I believe it's called. I've seen different different variations on it, but I think the the preferred term is Bitcoin Cash. Right. Okay. There is yep. a new currency, but that one seems to have taken a bit of a nosedive down, whereas Bitcoin itself has 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 gone up obviously it's almost as amazing as it's as it sounds like near 70 percent in 18 days i mean it's just insane Mm -hmm. so um so i i was i was to be honest i was a bit surprised by that i thought that that there that there was going to be much more of a a a challenge to that and was going to cause much more of a shake-up in what was going on in the industry and really, you know, turns out didn't didn't amount to all that much. So, well, they have a lot of really really smart people working on this, you know, yep. and they all kind of have a vested interest in in right not not blowing it. <laughs> they got yep. skin in the game. Yeah, absolutely. And and what I came across anyway, and we'll post this as a show note. And this is where it, where it was the impetus for me to mention it is is it the article is from Bitcoin to Ether today's blockchain basics. So any of those those of you who are still investigating and trying to figure this whole thing out, we'll post this article. I think it would be be really helpful. It it, it kind of takes you through a little bit of the history, but then um, also some of the more advanced concepts, and it does so in a in, in an understandable way. So share that with the, with the rest of the group. And and George Gilder just delivered a talk to what is it the Bitstacker conference Bitstack yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he talked about something in there that the you know what they need to work on for Bitcoin um, and I forget what it was but we'll well I'll try and get that uh, Gilder uh, talk in the post too that was in the show notes that was really good but at one thing the Economist does did have some analysis on, you know, some people were calling this Bitcoin, especially when it really started to, to you know, ramp up. They were mm-hmm. calling it a virtual tulip mania. A virtual what? Tulip mania. You know? Tulip mania. Tulip. Okay, tulips. Right, got it. Right, got right, it. Got it. Thing. Yeah. Um, and, and the economist said this is nonsense because unlike tulips, Bitcoin has real uses. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I think what we're seeing, and Gilder kind of refers this in his talk, but you know, this a global platform such as the internet needs a global currency. Yeah. And as more and more people find utility in this thing, it's going to be more, more and more widely adopted. Yeah, except for those countries that are trying to keep it out, which I find really interesting. You I know, I, 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 it's. What's in my Bitcoin stack, Ed, is all about the regulations, the SEC, 
the IRS. I mean, they they are trying to, you know, tack on 1920s, 30s regulation onto this thing. And it's just not, it's not going to work. No. They don't understand the technology. No. But they could significantly slow it down. Yeah, and I do, I do have briefly, and we'll, we'll go to break after this, but I do have a, a briefly one. And I think this fi- died in the Senate, but there was a Senate bill, uh, Senate Bill 1241, that was deterring individuals from entering, I love this one, entering individuals uh, in the United States from bringing with them undeclared assets in the form of Bitcoin. Okay, so let's process this through a little bit, right? This bill basically said that you can't bring in a digital currency. <laughs> wait, wait, what? <laughs> you have to turn over your phone. Yeah. Like, wait, wait, hold on a second. You you can't come into the country. I guess I guess if you own more than I forget what the number was. Let's call it just ten thousand. I don't see a number on this thing. But if you had any Bitcoin, you couldn't come into the United States. Well, that, yeah, clearly that would be a problem because otherwise you could just transfer it to yourself <laughs> later. I mean, like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how do you know? Like, this is just I, I clearly just insane, right? Yep. Yep. And, and, and lack of basic understanding. I mean, it's like saying you can't come into the country if you have intellectual property assets that are stored on a Google Drive somewhere. Yep. <laughs> I, and now we've got FASB starting to weigh in on the reporting of digital assets and currency, and they're just going to gum up the works even more with their silly standards, I'm sure. That's going to be a real nightmare. Um, I, I just, I don't know, I just see some some government stupidity getting in the way here of this thing taking off. I mean, imagine if that would have happened um, with the internet itself. Well, let's just hope that we continue to out-innovate the government, which I think is always what the possibility is. All right, Ron. Well, let's get to the break here so that we can come back with more of our stack of stuff with regard to Rider Friday. I want to remind you, contact Ron or me, asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is thesoulofenterprise.com. And out there, you will see show notes and previews to upcoming shows, as well as an archive page where you can see every show that we've done since the beginning, way back on July 4th of 2013. I can't believe it. That's crazy. It seems to we've been on the air for that long. Right now, a word, however, from our sponsor. future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're doing Free Rider Friday from July, so catching up here. But Ed, I got one that just totally disturbs me. This is, again, from The Economist called Not So Frugal. F-R-O-O-G-L-E, from July 1st, 2017. Okay, I see where we're going here, yep. Marguerite Vestager, and I don't care if that's how you pronounce it, could care less. She's the EU competition (laughs) commissioner. She fined Google $2.4 billion, with a B, dollars, which is a record in Europe. And from what I can find, it's a record in the USA as well as an antitrust penalty for abusing its monopoly. $2.7 $2.7 billion fine. Now, Google's obviously appealing this and doesn't agree with this decision. It was primarily based on one business owner's complaint. Um, I mean, it was, you know, that's how, that's what kind of launched this entire investigation who had a competing, you know, shopping comparison site, but was finding that her results were not being listed, you know, on the first page of the Google search. So they were obviously biasing their own search results. Um, Google launched a price comparing, comparing shopping site in 2002 in Europe called Frugal, which they later changed to Google Shopping. Mm-hmm. And it systematically favored their own results. Now, in Europe, Google has a 90% market share. And... Uh, this EU competition commissioner basically said that they were abusing their monopoly. Now, Google counter argues that, look, consumers can look up products on many other websites. Am- ever hear of Amazon? Yeah, hello? eBay, you know, or in all the other big stores, and including the ones over there. Um, interestingly enough, of course, the commission does not count those as search engines in their 90% numbers. That 90% number is completely bogus. Right. And, you know, the other thing is competition's just a click away here. I mean, let's compare this. Let's compare shopping for the best price. That's really your goal. And it's a small subset of any population, by the way, that solely bases their decisions on the absolute lowest price. Yeah. But let's just compare shopping on the web via Google or Bing. I don't care what you use. 
compare that to the shoe leather that we used to expend driving around town or, or you know, plowing through newspapers or, or whatever. I mean, th- this is just insanity. Um, and, you know, this is somebody else from the EU says, oh, we need these super flat platforms to adhere to a principle of neutrality. This is another thing that drives me crazy. This idea of neutrality, there's no such thing as neutrality in competition. The whole point of competition is not to be neutral, right? Really? Just like in a war. You, you want neutral uh, firepower with your enemy? No, you want overwhelming force to destroy them. And Thomas Hazlitt, who's a professor out here of economics at UC Davis, brilliant guy, he's got a new book out called Political Spectrum. He's, he's an expert in FCC, radio spectrum, regulation, all of this stuff, FCC, you know, internet, net neutrality. And he argues in this book, if we have net neutrality, there's no iPhone because iPhone was not neutral. So th- this whole thing is just crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And then come to find out that the EU loves to find our tech companies. They, f- they have fined, and we're talking close to a billion dollars. They find Intel over a billion. They have fined Microsoft three times, collectively over a billion, and they find Facebook couple hundred million and do you know do you know why they do that ron well look none of this because money, they can because, because they, they can, can. <laughs> exactly no, and none of this money goes to the so-called consumer who was supposedly no. harmed by this none of it even goes to businesses who claim they were harmed now, i don't know what the stats are in in europe but i can tell you in the u.s of a 90 percent of antitrust suits are generated because other companies complain it's not the government it's other companies that bring a complaint to the government and create an investigation. That seems what happened here. There's actually a Planet Money episode on this on NPR. Is Google too big? And they actually interview the gal who, who filed the complaint. Uh, and I, I just, I, you know, the, the, it, it's, it's doubly insulting that this comes out of the EU, non-elected, non-accountable, non-responsible to anybody, right. and that they can turn around and fine a company for 2.7 or whatever it is billions of dollars i hope google but even if they win they're going to lose they've probably spent a fortune fighting this and will continue to do so it's this is a travesty well it's 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 basically uh what is that uh, civil asset forfeiture for companies yep that that's basically it's the same deal it's blackmail you want to operate mm-hmm. the eu yeah you play by our dumb dumb rules that that and they offer no evidence that anybody's harmed in this that's the killer thing where'd they get this 2.7 billion dollars from it's the appearance that somebody could be harmed oh ron it's not <laughs> ed we got to do a show on antitrust i am just yeah. the eu is even worse so uh, yeah. i'll stop otherwise my blood pressure will shoot through the roof but this is ridiculous all right, we got five. We got five minutes left. I'm, I'm going I'm to keep your blood. Let's get get the blood pressure done in this segment. Okay. Okay. Good. So, so you might you, since you, it's already high, let's just you know keep it for a while, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll do something else so that your blood pressure can go down. But you might, okay. since you're revved up anyway, GOP healthcare in the United States. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's what? my party, and I'll cry if I want. <laughs> It's like, really? Come on, Rod. Holy cow, your party here. 
Well, the, the, hey, Ed, okay, this, might, spend, this might this might be the implosion you're waiting for in that guy's law to get your get your third party. That's exactly where I was going with this, my friend. I think I, you know, now now of course, and we're going to do this next week. We're going to talk about the events in Charlottesville and some other things that are more pertaining to August. But so the, the healthcare thing goes back to to July, which is all we were talking about in July. Oh, and the Russia thing that nobody can figure out. I, every time I've asked people, they're like, "Well, there's something with Russia." I'm like, "Okay, see, so I don't have to worry about that." But but this one is easily articulatable, and that is is I believe that when the GOP controlled. Um, Congress, uh, when and Obama was president, they voted to repeal he- health care, I want to say 60 times, something least, like that. At least, 50 something. Right? Yeah, right. Okay. It, so, near 60 times they were. They voted raised in a- money on it. They yep. campaigned on it. They promised yep. it. Yep. yep. And then now that now they're there and they're going, ah, well, no. It's complicated. <laughs> it's, re- yeah. Uh, now, he. As an outsider in this, and as a sense as a libertarian, I'm thinking about this slightly differently. You know, there is a it, sort of a, a blessing in disguise kind of thing because without, by not passing anything, Obamacare is still in play, and therefore that the the continued destruction of certain markets and the fact that you know there, there's no exchanges in in more and more counties and more and more states every every day or every week it seems could play against it. But then, you know, the Democrats just simply say, well, if, if we were in charge, we would have voted to make the correct necessary corrections Absolutely. to this. Right. They need more money or we need single payer, which well, I think but, was the, the design to begin with. Oh, without question, without question that single single that, that there, there is no way that anybody with, with a head that has can think about ec- anything economically could think that what Obamacare was, was sustainable in any way. Yep. So because it's, it's not insurance. Period. No. I think you call it whatever you want. It's not insurance. I'm so sick of this. I mean, I think all, all our Facebook friends are wrong. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let me so let me throw this out at you, and and I want to get your reaction to it. And that is, I did read in a blog, the the Coyote blog. I don't know those of you are familiar with this. Pretty interesting. Um, the the here's here's the here, a proposal that I think everybody hates. Therefore, it should be implemented. Mm-hmm. In the United States, and by the way, for those of you listening in Australia and other places, Canada, this this could be a system that works for you too, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this and this it, it is it is this the first up to the first ten percent of anyone's adjusted gross income, and of course, then we get into the debate of what is and is not included right. in adjusted gross right. income. But let's let's just say you know leave adjusted a gross income as it stands today. Okay, sure. Just There's a there. tax return definition for that. Right, exactly. Tax return definition of adjusted gross up to the first ten percent of that number. With, the, with that number, then you personally are responsible for paying those health care bills. Yep. After that, it's single payer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hence, nobody likes this. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, you you know I, that's fascinating. I think it's really good because imagine what this would do to the overwhelming majority of transactions right the individual transactions would all be for the most part 90 plus percent of them i believe on the free market and i think that would spur an incredible amount of innovation yes it would and it would bring price transparency for that 10 percent because that 10 percent is going to be driving the other 90 percent as well Mm -hmm. 
You know, it's much like profits. They're only 10% of the economy, but they drive 90% of the allocation of everything else, labor, capital, right? The pursuit of those profits. So the, the price transparency would be um, a, a great effect from this. It's very similar to a health savings account, but yes. it's, got that, yeah, it's got that twist in it. But it's interesting. Look, I, you know, it's kind of like the UBI, right? The universal basic income. If, if we had it the way Charles Murray proposed it in his book, yeah, I'd go for it. Right. It's not, it, it's not a good idea. I don't like it, but it's the least bad idea. Yeah, and that's, that's just, you know, I'm getting so sick of always taking the least bad <laughs> I I agree I agree but but you know that that again that goes back to Duverger's law and that is you know, which which also has to do with me, uh, median voter theorem is that you're going to get that's that's what you're going to get yeah no I totally agree you're going to get something in the middle so what I think this does is this this certainly appeases the 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 free marketeers because as we we talked about the huge overwhelming amount of the transactions would appear in the free market but. It also, I think, satisfies the overwhelming majority, or I shouldn't say, you know, the hardcore leftist Democrats are going to want single payer for everything because that's just their belief system. But, but honest to goodness, people, if they are given the opportunity, will say, well, yeah, this is at least prevents me from from um, from a catastrophic illness wiping me out. Right. Right. Yep. Well, this is great, Ed. Uh, we got one more segment to go on, folks. I'd like to remind you, if you'd like to contact Ed or myself and keep those emails coming, we love them and we read them all and we even respond, as you've learned, to uh, send emails to asktsoe at verisage.com. We will post full show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com on all the topics we talked about today. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
Well, welcome back, everybody. We're doing Free Rider Friday from July, doing some catch-up here. And Ed, on August 2nd, um, which was two days before we were scheduled to do the Free Rider show, but the Voice America station got flooded, mm-hmm. we received a letter from a great TSOE listener, John Clemens, a CPA, who said, gentlemen, I really struggle when I get the response that my price is too expensive. I don't get it all that often, which tells me my pricing is okay, I think, but I wanted to see what your best responses would be to that response question. Thanks, guys, and keep up the great work. So what do you say to that, Ed? Um, okay, well, I've, one, I would be concerned with the that often, and it, I, I want to see about 10% price resistance, Ron. So I sure. want to I want to see actively nine out of ten. Well, I'm sorry, ten, one out of ten proposals you, you, that somebody goes, "Oh my gosh, you're incredibly insane." Yeah. That, that sticker that, shock, that, sticker shock, right? So I'm I'm good with that. Uh, the response that I would give, and, and this and people are not going to like this because this is very New York kind of in your face. But I would say something like, "Yep, that sounds about right." Yep. <laughs> yeah. That sounds about right. Uh, the only other thing that I have heard, and you can use a variation on this, and this was something that I heard uh, that uh, Zig Ziglar, I went to see Zig Ziglar one time, uh, Ron, down here in, in Dallas. He, he used to teach, teach slash preach on Sundays at Prestonwood Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. And he and would, do, would do a thing on business, but but he told a story the, the one time I went to see him about the, the, the I think it was the CEO of Snap-on Tools. Mm-hmm. And the guy at Snap-on Tools had this great line about this. He said, I would rather apologize for price once than quality a hundred times. Right. Great line. Yep. Yep. That's excellent. Yep. So. I, I would say, John, that, you know, somewhere in your onboarding process, maybe that's your initial value conversation in your initial conversation, just to set the expectation kind of test the water say something like look we're not the cheapest cpa firm in town should we continue (laughs) yeah Uh, i i I found that line very effective also anytime i hear that they think your price is expensive i really don't think that's what they're saying if you dig deep to that what they're really saying is i don't understand the value and it could be because we didn't have a thorough enough value conversation um you know questioning is really really important uh, we did a whole show on asking better questions. Ed, this I know is a big part of your consulting um, train. You know, education is the mm-hmm. is the art of consultants questioning. Um, you got to constantly reiterate the value. I would also point out that you've got a value guarantee that you're offering a fixed price, unlike the competition who's giving an hourly rate, which is not a price. That you use a change request policy. That, that prevents any surprises and that you will never do unauthorized work without first uh, detailing scope and price and payment terms. And if you bundle in unlimited access uh, to engagements, that that is incredibly valuable. So I would reiterate those points as well. And just keep in mind that oftentimes it's not the price that's wrong, it, it's the customer that's wrong. Right. Uh, so... That, that, that would be my advice. But great question, John. Thank you so much for, for writing in. And Ed, just to clear up some other admin stuff here, we got another iTunes review from C Wicker 12 on iTunes, five star. And he said, TSOE is in a world of its own. Uh, a true look at real world questions and theories existing in our world today. Ed and Ron are the perfect match to keep you engaged and coming back for more every week. I highly recommend everybody 
to experience the Soul of Enterprise podcast. By adding this to your listening routine, you will expand and challenge the norm of our thinking in today's society. Keep up the great work, guys. Thank you so much. That that was very That's nice. That's awesome. That made, that made yep. my day. So Another five-star review, Ron. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, so, Ed, uh, another one that's kind of on the high blood pressure side. but I've, Hey, I've calmed down. I'm not bringing it up this time. Yeah, I know. I've calmed down significantly since this. But the whole Charlie Guard. Oh, boy. The little boy whose parents, Connie Yates and Chris Guard, you know, they wanted to try an experimental treatment in the USA that this poor little infant had this oh this is a mouthful encephalomyopathic mitochondrial dna depletion syndrome mdds 16 known cases worldwide as of this date the british government refused the parents to take the son to the usa the great ormond uh, great ormond street hospital which by the way where i think paul o'burn got a lot of his cancer treatment uh, they did receive death threats, Ed. So I was kind of glad to hear that. And I'll explain that comment. I, I, I don't, I don't mean to, I don't mean to say that that's a great thing. But but let me, I'll, I'll explain that. The parents raised 1.4 million pounds on the crowdfunding site to be able to take the child to a USA doctor. Uh, it was a doctor in uh, in at the Columbia University who was going to carry out an experimental treatment. And two congressmen actually passed legislation to expedite uh, little Charlie's trip to the USA. But the British High Court on April 11th said no. The judge ruled the doctors to turn off life support. The parents appealed to the Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court, and the European Court of Human Rights. Um, and they all denied the thing. Now, <laughs> you know, I, I was outraged at this. Um, and I just think, you know... Um, I understand that adults can, you know, can consent to experimental treatments, but courts can overrule in cases of children. I get that. Um, in, in the USA, courts are very, very, very reluctant to go against mm-hmm. the parents' wishes, uh, against the parents' wishes, um, which can mean sometimes that doctors are performing treatments they believe go against the best interests of the patient. Texas has a futile care law that basically says if doctors feel treatment is of no benefit, they can go before an ethics committee, and if the committee agrees, the parents can seek another doctor to, to carry out the experimental treatment within a time limit. Luckily, only 10% of these cases involve severely ill babies, but Charles Krauthammer wrote a very thought-provoking piece. He said, there's two truths that must guide in any decision like this. He said, the parents must be sovereign, but the parents are sometimes wrong. He believes the parents are wrong in this case, but he says, love and sentimentality have to prevail. We should let the you know, parents take the kid to the USA, because what's best for the child is a loving parent, because their motive is most pure. And I just can't believe that death is in anybody's best interest. Um, it reminds me of a Dr. House episode where one of his doctors is yelling at him and House replies, yeah, I'm trying to save her life. I'm morally bankrupt. Right. There, I mean, there's so much to, as, as Russ Roberts says on his show, unpack here, Ron, and we've only got about two or three minutes left. But I, uh, look, I, I agree with you. I, this, this was an absolute travesty. The, the the notion that that a, a judge can com- completely overrule a a a parent uh, with what they want to do with their their child uh, with with regard to seeking attention 
right? Now, one of the one of the 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 because I did get into a number of conversations on Facebook about this, and one of the things that someone brought up was, well, you know, in, in the United States, Christian Science parents, it, this has already been ruled that the state can step in and I- insist on treatment, mm-hmm. right? Yep. I'm like, well, but the, the, <laughs> you can't you can't just assume the inverse is then also true. Exactly. Right. Those are two different scenarios. Totally. And th- these parents had raised the money through, as you said, through crowdsourcing. They, they had volunteers willing to be able to, to, to transport the child in a, in a medically uh, effective way. Uh, for a time, there was even a doctor in New York City who was willing to, to, to treat uh, Charlie. But uh, that, that actually went away at, at a certain point because of the, the, the progression of the disease. Right. Um, I'm sorry. I just think this was a- absolutely wrong, and and yep. it is horrible. Yep. You know, National Review put it best. They said that this is a horrifying precedent in the UK, and by extrapolation throughout Europe, every child belongs finally to the state. And I don't like that idea. So, Ed, what's up for next week? <laughs> well, Ron, we have another episode <laughs> of Free Rider Friday, so we're ready to rock and roll. Excellent. That will give me my blood pressure chance to reset. All right, I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please do visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.